This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon Church, we are continuing to move through this book of John, and we've been going through this now for a couple of months. And uh, when you really think through where we are now, Jen did a great job in preaching through this last week, showing us as we're walking through these last words of Jesus over the next three chapters, we're in a place where Jesus has already given uh, his, he's, he's conducted his ministry. He's at the end of his three-year ministry. He has done incredible miracles. He's made bold and borderline outlandish claims by those in the community. He's done some incredible things. He's caused a lot of people to either follow him, to hate him, to want to kill him. And now here he is in this upper room with his disciples He's already washed their feet. He's already uh, given some, some prophetic statements about what's coming. He's told them that he's not going to be with them much longer. In many ways, you can look at this as Jesus's last will and testament. These are his final words. These are his parting commands. And here he has these disciples who've been following him for three years. They've watched him. They've trusted him. He has done incredible miracles in their midst. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's given sight to the blind. He's allowed the lame to walk. He's made bold claims about himself. They're starting to try to trust him, but they don't quite understand everything. And now he's getting ready to leave. They don't understand exactly how. They don't even understand exactly why. They just sense this foreboding future that doesn't seem positive. They don't know exactly what's going to happen, but they sense something bad is going to happen. Their hearts are troubled. And so Jen walked through why, how we actually take peace. Where do we find comfort in Jesus? Jesus had already given them huge statements about himself, pointing to himself, telling them not to be troubled because they can trust in the present hope and the future hope that he gives them. But then we have to stop and go, when he makes this statement, he, go, he goes further. He doesn't just say, trust my work and trust my words. He then begins to explain to them why his work is rooted in the Father. Somehow, we're supposed to take comfort. When our hearts are troubled, we take comfort in Jesus because Jesus shows us the Father. So here we are. Jesus is giving his last will. His last will and testament. Most times when people die, they, if, they, if they think ahead enough, they create a will. And in that will, they're, they're, the, the idea is that they're leaving some things to their loved ones to do one of two things, and maybe both. To leave them something that they can actually take, uh, uh, take joy in remembering. Sometimes things are left as a memorial because they're gone. I'm not going to see them again, but I can be reminded of the things that I loved about them. I can be reminded about the things that that they brought into my life when they were here. And then in, in some other instances, they will leave some things that will actually bring hope to you for the life that you're going to continue to live. Sometimes and many times it's, hey, listen, life might be hard. I'm going to bring real hope by leaving maybe something monetary, 
or maybe land or maybe something that you can actually take uh, value in because I want you to have a sense of hope. Well, Jesus is actually leaving both of these things to his disciples in this last will and testament. All the way through from chapter 14 through, through chapter 17, you see Jesus giving them reasons to hope in who he is to them and hope in who he will be to them. And when you think about last wills and testaments, I think that uh, it's interesting. I took a look at some real famous wills, some famous last will and testaments to see what types of things people leave. Marilyn Monroe, Monroe left everything she had to her acting coach. That was it. She didn't leave it to anyone else. She said, this, these are the things that I'm leaving, things that are related to her acting career, money. Left that to her acting coach. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis have decided their kids are on their own. There's nothing they're leaving to them. No money, nothing at all. There may be you know, a pair of socks, I don't know. But outside of that, nothing monetary is being left. Simon Cowell, worth $570 million. In the event that he passes, his five-year-old son gets nothing. As a matter of fact, the money that he leaves behind, they're going to go to charities that focus on dogs and kids, just not his kids. Then Sting. Sting says, if I die, good luck to my kids. My goal is to spend as much of my money as I can while I'm here. And so for his, I think, five or six kids that he has, they're going to be left with a lot of great records, but not a whole lot of money. Gordon Ramsay, incredibly famous chef, leaving nothing to his kids. So they may have some, some things to remember him by, but it won't be anything related to the fortune that he has amassed. You see, there are, there are places, there are plenty of examples where people have left money to their kids, but the, at the end of the day, all you can do is either leave people with something that will remind them of you, or give them a sense of hope about things that are to come. Jesus is here. In many ways, you could call this a prelude to a funeral. These folks already realize they're mourning what's coming. And he comforted them with his words and with his work, but he doesn't just leave it there. Again, he roots his work in the work of his father. And he tells them that they should find confidence and comfort in that. That's why at the end of the sermon that Jen preached last week, look at verses six and seven again of chapter 14. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is his response back to Thomas, by the way. When Thomas says, well, you're, you're saying you're going to prepare a place for us. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He says, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is telling us, that not only do his works and his words uh, show us who he is and bring us real comfort and bring us hope, but we need to be able to tie his words and his work to the work of the Father. There is a union between the Son and the Father in which we are supposed to take hope. When our hearts are troubled, we need to be reminded that Jesus was more than just a great miracle worker. We need to be reminded that he is united with God the Father, that he is truly God in the flesh. So in that, the question that we're going to be working off of is this, how does our heart find stillness in the waters of hearts that are troubled? In other words, if we have incredible troubled lives or there are things that are giving us real reason for pause, for real concern, how do we find real hope then? And then more to the point, 
How does, what aspects of Jesus showing us the Father bring us comfort? How are we supposed to be comforted by Jesus showing us the Father? We've got to connect the union, right? We've got to figure out that union between Jesus and the Father. Because what we're going to see in this text is that Jesus shows us that when we connect him to the Father, it's going to bring increased knowing, increased showing, and increased growing. Those things are the things in which we actually get real comfort. Those are the things that give us real confidence. There's this increased knowing, this increased knowledge of who God is, this increased uh, sense in which we're able to show <clears throat> and work through uh, and do works through the Father and then grow because of the ways that the Father is growing us. So in that, <clears throat> let's, let's look through uh, John chapter 14, verses 8 through 17. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> when you consider this statement, when you consider these series of statements, where Jesus is basically saying, not only am I the savior of the world, not only am I going to do these incredible things even in my death, but none of these things are done just to bring glory to me alone because I'm united with the rest of the Godhead. I'm united with God the Father. God the Father's eternal decrees are played out and manifested in God the Son. Jesus is saying, do not ever separate me from the Father. Everything that I'm doing, I'm doing to show you the Father. So when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us in verse 8. Think about this request. This is an incredible request from Philip. Philip wanted to see the Father. Jesus just said, listen, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare many rooms. I'm going to do it. If I couldn't do it, I would have told you I couldn't do it, but I'm really doing this thing, and I'm doing this thing quickly, and you guys need to have hope while I'm gone. And they're like, well, how do we know where you're going? And that's when Jesus says, I'm going because I'm going to actually do this to glorify my father. If you saw me, you would know the father in me and you'd be able to trust. So Phil says, okay, that's great. I hear what you're saying. So just show us the father. That's all I need. That's everything I need. If you can show me the father, that'll be enough for me. See, Jesus already said, don't let your hearts be troubled. So Philip is expressing something that we all feel. When your heart is troubled, you want, what Philip wants. When your heart is burdened, overtaxed, when it's stressed, you want what Philip wants. I want 
what Philip wants. What Philip wants is something that the Greeks would refer to as a theophany. You see several examples throughout the Old Testament where a theophany is literally an appearance or a manifestation of God where you didn't expect it before. So, so there are times where God does show his presence through a number of uh, things in some phenomenological ways. There are times where he may show up in the form of a burning bush or show up in the form of an angel or show up as himself in different ways. There are ways in which folks go, wow, I saw God and I didn't die. We see scriptures like that. I saw God and, and, and I know that he is going to keep his word because I saw a manifestation of him. So Philip is going, everything you're saying, Jesus, we don't quite understand, but we want to believe. So if you could just show us the Father, that would be enough for us. We want, we want some physical manifestation of God appearing before our very eyes. Our thoughts are, if, if I only could get a clear vision of God, then I would have everything I need to handle all the troubles of my life. Isn't that the truth? We feel that. Right? There are times where there's, you cannot see what's coming. You're even worried about something negative, something bad, something injurious that's coming. And it scares us. It stresses us out. It makes us get to a place where we either, A, try to look for something that Jen preached against. We try to look for escapism because I'm so overwhelmed with this impending thing that I can't quite put my finger on, but I know it ain't good. And so I need to just duck my head in the sand or binge a series or find a way to remove myself. I'm not dealing with the coming trouble. I'm just trying to evade it or avoid it. And so, yes, we feel like Philip would feel. Lord, I wouldn't feel the need to put my head in the sand if I just knew that you were there. I wouldn't feel the need to just sit and cry and and feel despondent and alone. I, I wouldn't feel the need to do that if I could just be convinced that you're here. Philip is us. We just want a clear view that God is there. This is the central issue of our life. When we know God and we know he's present, when we have a clearer vision of who he is, when we know God is with us, when we know God is for us, when we understand his greatness and his power and we trust him completely, well then, as Philip says, we, we can say, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. We could say that. So the response from Jesus is awesome and profound. Because when you look at how he responds in verse 9, it's, so, it's interesting the way that he the way he words this and his choice of words here, he says, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? I've been with you all this time. You've been seeing incredible manifestations of things that are supernatural. You've seen me do things that have never been done in any recorded history anywhere. You've seen miracles uh, uh, be performed that no one can explain. You've seen someone literally come back from the dead at my hands and you still don't know who I am. The one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say then to show us the father? Whoa. Ultimately, he's looking at Philip and he's saying, don't you know me? Don't you realize who I am? I've been with you all this time. You don't see me. This is one of the most staggering claims. When he, when he further uh, says, he says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does these works. When he says this, this is one of the most staggering claims 
that Jesus makes up to this point. In me, you are seeing the Father. In other words, he's saying, Philip, I know what it is that you want to see. You want to see something that is clearly a theophany. You want to see something that is clearly God showing up the way he showed up in the Old Testament. Uh, For many of us, we are held hostage by all the ways we remember God acting in the past. And so we expect him to act that way in the present and in the future, because that's the only way we think we can recognize him. You see, God has never shown up completely enfleshed as a man up to this point. So for them, they're going, Jesus, can you just show us in a way that is familiar to us? So they're held hostage by the familiar. And Jesus says, you should have already known the very spirit behind the familiar. Sometimes we can be so caught up in the manifestation that we miss the man. We can be so caught up in the ways that God has shown himself in some different ways that we care about the way that it's been uh, 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 presented and we don't even see the presenter. And so Jesus is saying, the spirit of God has been here the entire time. The father has been alive in me this entire time. You don't need a theophany. I am, I'm not just the expression. I am God in the flesh. Here we are united. So in many ways, he's saying, by now, you should have realized that Jesus was God in human form. Scripture tells us later in in Colossians 1, he is the visible, tangible image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 tells us he's the exact representation of God's nature. He's the complete revelation of what God is like. But please understand, Jesus isn't rebuking Philip here. So often we can just be so hard on as if we are not Philip, as if we are not Thomas, as if we are not Peter. But but ultimately, Jesus is pointing out that because of the way your heart is put together, because of the way your heart is set up, you're going to keep wanting to run away from things that trouble you because your eyes keep moving away from who God is. You keep trusting other things because you still don't quite know how to keep your gaze fixed on God. Things are always competing for your attention. And you know the best way to get our attention away from God? Real trouble. It's interesting because people will always say, you know, one of the things that lead us back to God is trouble. It takes a while to get there, though, because when trouble first hits, we start looking at all the other things that could potentially comfort us. We don't look to see where God is there first. We look to see where our comfort is first. And they're, they're not always synonymous. And so you see Jesus, uh, he's not rebuking. He's basically explaining to Philip. He's actually just accepting the ways in which our eyes wander off of the the place in which we should find our greatest comfort, our greatest confidence. And he's, he's explaining to Philip. Philip wants to see God. And he's saying that to see me is to see God. To know me is to know God. In Jesus, we see the true nature and the character of God. So the search for God, the search for the Father, the search that we all are in, the truth, right, the reality, it all ends in Christ. Jen preached that last week. There's nothing that's true that's not true because of God. Everything that's true roots back to the author of all truth. Jesus came to give perfect revelation of his Father. So we can know God personally through knowing Jesus. That's why he said what he said. We can know him personally. If I really want to know God, then the only way to know him is to be able to know him through the very one, God the Son, who expressed God perfectly in human form. 
That's why the revolution, uh, the revelation of Jesus is so profound. It's so profound that we should not require anything else to arrive at that knowledge. We should not require anything else. Philip's looking for something else. And Jesus is saying, there is nothing else but me because I'm God in the flesh. We are united. There's nothing else to show you except for God himself. And that's what I'm showing you. This, is, this reminds us of really Paul's words in, in Ephesians when he wrote to the believers in Ephesus and he prayed for them and he, he asked for what is most essential. In Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, he said, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Still using last will and testament language, but there's a hope that we're supposed to have that's both present and future like was preached last week. Jesus speaks of this complete unity between him and the Father. This unity is why he can truly and completely reveal the Father to us. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The unity with the Father that Jesus talks about here, it means that they are one in essence, one in purpose. And then Jesus shares a threefold proof that Jesus and the Father are unified and should therefore believe in him. Here are the three reasons he gives. Believe him because of his character. He says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Which means my, how I function, the, the intents of my heart, the intentions of my heart, the way that I move, the things that move my heart, the things I get angry about, the things that I celebrate, the things I love, the things I hate, those are all reflections of the character of God. He is in me. I am, I am in him. Believe that I'm him when you see the character, the same character you claim to read about God the Father, you should see that character in me. Believe me because I'm him. Believe me because of my unity with him. Second point, believe him because his words are directly from the Father. The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. This is, this is such an incredible picture because we're seeing, and this is hard to understand, but we're seeing there is a uniqueness in personality between God the Son and God the Father, but we see a union between them. So Jesus is saying, these aren't just my words. I'm not speaking, uh, speaking these words of my own accord. I'm not speaking these words simply because these are things that I just feel. There's not a word that I utter that's not rooted in the words of the Father. So believe me because my words are coming from him, not just from me. And then thirdly, believe him because his miracles prove that the Father is working through him. The Father who lives in me does his works, right? Believe I'm in the Father and believe the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So when you see just how Jesus is saying, you should know, here's how you can know. Again, I don't think he's actually spanking them, verbally spanking them and, and, and trying to rebuke them. I think in many ways he's teaching them. They're gonna have to remember this because they're getting ready to walk into some real scary situations. A lot of these folks aren't gonna make it. At some point, all of them are going to end up dying or being martyred, except for maybe John lives out his long life. The rest of them are likely going to be, be martyred. So they're going to have to hold on to something else. 
They're going to have to hold on to something more than just the things they remember. There's something uh, that they need to be looking forward to. So that's that knowledge piece, right? There has to be a greater knowing. I need to know that Jesus is representing the Father. I need to know. I know that there are things in my life that might make me doubt whether or not he truly is in control or whether or not I can truly trust the promises he makes. But as long as I know that God the Son is united with God the Father, as long as I know that they are working in concert for my good, that knowledge can bring comfort. That knowledge can bring confidence. But not only is it a greater knowing that comes to those who trust the union between Jesus and the Father, there's a greater showing. There are greater works that will be done in us. Verses 12 through 14. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Wait. So Jesus is saying, in, these, in his last words, he's saying, you're going to do the same works, even greater works than I did. Then later, ask for anything and I will do it. How, how can both these promises even be true? Jesus anticipated that question. That's why he prefaced his statements with, truly I tell you, I tell you the truth. He has to start with that, right? Because the first problem we often have is not so much with doing the same works as Jesus, but the promise that we'll do even greater works. Like we're trying to figure out how is that possible? How could I do anything more than raising someone from the dead? First of all, I've never done that. I haven't, so, so how can I even expect to do something greater than that? So in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we've got to realize that Jesus is building up to this promise of the Holy Spirit who he would give to live in us. So it's likely that these greater works that Jesus has in mind has to do more with this spiritual rebirth that's happening and the ways in which his, those who have been reborn or born again or changed or completely remade, those folks were going out and communicating the truth of the Father's heart, communicating the words that Jesus has left us with communicating the very mission of God to redeem and reconcile. If that's true, then you're seeing people truly having their hearts turned to Christ, through Christ, towards the Father's heart. That's, what you're, that's what's happening, right? So you've got Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus in his human form, this is hard to, to grasp at times, Jesus in his human form could only be in one place at one time, as in his human form right? He's God in the flesh, but clearly we know that there are certain limitations he voluntarily took where he was able to kind of show glory to the Father in so doing. So there are certain places where Jesus is only in one place at one time, but Jesus in us through the Holy Spirit can be in many places at one time. So there's no question that the followers of Jesus in terms of scope and scale are actually doing greater works, than Jesus did. Why? Think about this. How many people really followed Jesus for the right reasons? Not many. If we want to be, if we want to be gracious, we could say, well, he had disciples that he loved and handpicked. So 12 guys that followed him. You had crowds, but the crowds were fickle, right? You had people who were getting fed. They loved it as long as Jesus was doing something material, materially for them. But then when those things subsided, they weren't still following. Many of them were the same ones that wanted to see him crucified, right? So, so how many people did Jesus truly have 
how many did he really have as true followers? By today's standards, we would call his leadership, right? By today's standards, if we were to just judge the followers, take a snapshot of AD 31, 32, 33, and say, let's judge him by the metrics that we use now to determine what a good leader is, we would say that's not a good leader because there weren't a whole lot of people truly following him. We've heard it said many times, you can say you're a leader, but if you have no one following you, you're just someone taking a walk. We would easily look at Jesus and say, man, that is... That's not good leadership. You've been making all these statements. How in the world, we would say that he didn't really leverage his power well, right? If you have all these abilities to raise people from the dead and give sight to the blind and give hearing to the, those who can't hear, you would think that you would find a way to create an incredible movement of people following you. Not, a, not to a place where you could actually be crucified, be on trial to be crucified. Once, once that, uh, that, that is levied upon you and you are now going to be killed, they even give an opportunity for people to, to, to see you be released and they don't even ask for you. Something went wrong in your leadership, right? That's what we would say, but that's not true. Ultimately, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the, the followers, we're gonna see that, we see that later in Acts. When that Holy Spirit comes and changes our hearts and gives us this reminder of who Jesus is, this reminder of who the Father is, this boldness to walk then in his purpose and walk in his mission, the people of God are able to, to proliferate out and be able to share the very words, the hearts, the works of God and see tons of people come to faith, not just on an individual level, but tons of people begin to change their communities and care about the citizens that live in their neighborhoods and want to see people cared for. That is the greater work. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to equip us to, to, to expand the scale and the scope of that ministry. So a greater number of people who would come to Jesus are going to come to Jesus through his followers. And in two, there's going to be this incredible scope where Christians are going to cover, followers of Jesus are going to cover all parts of the world, the whole world. So working in the power of the Holy Spirit, given to the disciples after Jesus went to the Father, is they're going to carry the gospel of God's kingdom out into the whole world, even to the Gentiles. Just like Jesus promised, when you look at Acts 1.8, what do they say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is why we would do greater works. This is, how, this is what he means. Now, the second difficulty we have is related to this promise that anything we ask for in his name, he will do. This is a very, very controversial passage because there are people who have taken incredible uh, comfort in this and taken great joy in this and even built wholesale theology based off of this passage. If I pray anything in Jesus' name, he promises to answer it. So oftentimes people will then say, listen, the, the degree to which your prayers are answered is, is really wrapped up in the degree to which you believe that he's going to answer them. And that's it. That's kind of the, those are the guardrails, right? Make sure that you believe you're going to get it and make sure you append it with in Jesus' name. That's not what this means. This does not mean that at first it sounds like uh, we're going to get unrestricted answers to our prayer. As long as uh, it's included, including the phrase in Jesus name. Now listen, to pray in Jesus name doesn't mean having the right appendix to your prayer. 
it doesn't mean making sure that you end it with the right phraseology. It's not just making sure at the end of your prayer you say, in Jesus' name, amen. This is not some magic formula. This is not about having the right mantra when we pray. When you, in the Bible, a person's name identified one's character and one's authority. This is very kingly language. If I were to bring a message from the king, there's a seal on that message. That seal shows the authority. The message I'm bringing is actually coming to you, not from the contents of my own heart. This is coming from the, from the, very, the deepest recesses of the, the heart of the king. This is the command from the king. This is what the king wants. So anything I'm communicating, I'm only communicating what the king already wants. I am asking this in the king's name. So you can't, in other words, a servant can't, if the king says, go and get for me 20 cattle, and then I go and say, uh, I'm going to ask for 20 cattle and five camels. Well, and I'm saying this and asking this in the king's name. I'm not. Because I'm not communicating what it is that the king actually wanted exclusively. I may bring up what the king wants, but I also bring up what I want. I'm no longer asking in the king's name. I'm asking it in my name. And the problem with that is I don't have the authority to ask for things the king didn't ask for. I don't have the authority to command or expect things that the king doesn't command or expect. So when Jesus says this, he basically is saying, Anything you ask in my name, meaning when you ask for things, ask for things I would ask for. When you pray for things, pray for things that I would pray for. Ask for things that are in line with the things that I already want. Pray for things that are in line. Do not pray against things or pray for things that I would not actually be for. Which also means make sure that we're praying for things that are against the very things God is against. This is what it means to pray in his name. Ultimately, praying in Jesus' name is not about praying with his permission. It's praying with his authority. Lord, I only want to ask for the things that you and your authority want. That's what it means to pray in your name. It's kingly language. We never want to make a request that the king would not make. So when we ask for anything, we must remember that our asking must be in his name. That is, it must be in accordance to God's character and God's will. God's not going to grant requests that are contrary to his nature or contrary to his will or for our selfish desires. But if we're sincerely following God and seeking to do his will, then our requests will be in line with what he wants and he will grant them. Ultimately, this is why we say prayer doesn't exist to move God. It exists to move you, which means when we're praying, we need to be evaluating the, the contents of and the intent of our prayer. Is it, are they reflecting the things God wants in our life, in our community, or is it a selfish prayer only? And I'll just add this, be very careful when we read the scriptures and we look and we see phrases like in your name. And so we think that that means something. People have done that too with baptism. Well, there are some places where it says be baptized in the name of Jesus. Other places it says be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we miss the entire point because we think that this command is wrapped up in the wording we think the command is wrapped up in the mantra, but it's not. It's just wrapped up in the authority of who God is. Jesus is the full expression of the Godhead, and the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit still is God. And so we, our goal is not necessarily make sure I say the right thing when I be baptized. Make sure I say the right thing when I pray. 
The question is make sure I'm desiring the things he desires. Make sure I'm advocating for the things that he advocates. Make sure that I'm hating the things that he hates. Further, how do we know that this isn't just make sure that you say in Jesus' name when you pray? Because the very author here, John, wrote another letter. He wrote a letter to the churches in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, and he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, we have what we have asked of him. We have the promise of an answered prayer when we pray according to his will. That is praying like Jesus. Jesus always prayed for the Father's will to be done. Jesus always prayed for the things that would bring the Father glory. Also, the promise of this verse, again, must be understood in the context of Jesus' promise to his disciples that their requests concerning bearing fruit for the kingdom of God would be answered because it would bring glory to God. This is that showing. We can take great comfort knowing that if I'm truly seeing the way that Jesus is united with the Father, not only will I have an increased knowledge of that, and that gives me comfort and confidence, but I realize that in doing that, the works that I do are going to bring great comfort, not because I'm doing them, but because I'm doing the works that he's called me to. They're works that are reflective of who he is. My prayers are reflective of what he wants. So there's this knowing, there's this showing, but then verses 15 through 17 shows us this increased growing. You might say increased resources. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind, peace in your heart. And if you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. First, this whole, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That is kind of a combination of both the showing and the growing, right? Because yes, the commands that he gives, keep in mind, Jesus just gave this new command. I think we need to tie that back just a few verses before, maybe a chapter or two before, he's already said, this new command I give you, right? Love one another as I have loved you. So again, if you love me, keep my commands. That is the greatest command. That is the new command that he gave. If you love me, love each other. The primary way, as we've said before, the primary way that we will know that we love him is not just based on what we know, but the love that we show. So he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not enough to think about his commandments and then not keep them and say, well, he knows my heart. He knows I intended to do it and I didn't. The question is, do I truly love him enough to love my neighbor? But then he goes further and he says, now, he knows that we're not going to be able to keep that commandment all the time. He knows that we're not going to be able to, to do this. He knows we're not going to have the power to do it on our own. These folks did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them yet. Throughout the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit would rest on a person, on a messenger of God. And when or if they would turn away, his spirit would be taken from them didn't dwell inside the heart of men and women, but he would rest on them. With a few exceptions, he would rest on them. And so it's going to be a little, a little bit, a few, maybe a few more days or maybe a week later when the, when the upper room experience is, uh, happens, and then we see the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. It's going to happen eventually. Why do we need it? We need it because we don't have it on our own to keep his commandments. We don't have it on our own. 
We find ourselves working really hard, keeping it one time, and then realizing, man, I just messed up again. I'm not loving God or my neighbor well. Somehow I violated something that breaks his heart. Or, or somehow I didn't treat someone in the way that he would want me to treat them. I, did not look, I overlooked them. I did, in my opinion, some of the worst forms of hatred is just apathy. I didn't even care about them. That's something that something has to change in me before I start to love you the way you need to be loved. The way Christ loved me, I can only, I can truly only love you the way Christ loved me when his spirit changes me. That's the only way. So when he says, if you love me, keep my commandment, that's got already got to make them go, oh man, we can't do that. Which is why he then says, but don't worry, I'm sending you a comforter. I'm sending you. I'm going to ask the father and he's going to give you another counselor to be with you forever. This peace and the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Even when you see your own failure, don't be troubled or afraid because I'm bringing a counselor, a comforter. This is so interesting, the word that's used here. This is the first time in the scriptures that this Greek word for counselor or helper is used. It's this word paracletus. We'll always see it uh, abbreviated to paraclete. It's, from two, it's a compound word of two Greek words, para alongside and, and clean or klein, which is uh, this idea of calling. Para is, is a, basically paraclete is saying calling alongside. Someone to call. It was often used in classical Greek. It was used the way that a person who had a servant or an employee, that they needed help, they would bring that employee or that servant alongside to help them. You also saw it be used more often than not as advocates when you were in a, a Greek court of law. And when you needed someone to come help plead your case or to come advocate for you, you would get a paraclete someone you could call by your side to advocate for you in ways you can't advocate for yourself. This is what Jesus is saying. In many ways, he's saying, you're going to need someone to, to call alongside to give you strength when your strength fades, to, 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 to build up a welling reservoir of love when your love fades, to, to give you hope when your eyes and your ears and your experience tell you that everything is hopeless and even to give you redemption when you fail in any of these things. You see, we can't argue our case on our own, but we need someone to come alongside to argue for us, to, to, to render us not, to, get to, to allow us to get a verdict, a verdict of not guilty, even when we are guilty. This is what this counselor is. This gives us great hope for the future. The Holy Spirit then gives us the resources. This is the growth. He gives us the resources we need for our spiritual survival and our fruitful service. Jesus would only be with these disciples just a little while longer, but he's not going to abandon them. Instead, he's going to give them an advocate like himself. So even though Jesus isn't going to be with them physically, which is the source of their trouble, part of the, their trouble is the fact that Jesus is getting ready to leave them. But the Holy Spirit's going to be there in a greater way. He's going to be there for a constant presence, a companion, a guide, a helper to empower them for all of these tasks ahead that God had for them. As Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is this advocate that will never leave you, and he will re reveal the truth about God. The Holy Spirit makes us aware of God's love, gives us power to love the way Jesus loved and wants us to love, he says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. This again, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray, gives guidance and purpose to our lives. 
This spirit unites us in relationship to God, revealing God and helping us to understand this truth. Listen, I don't know about you, but many times there are things that can compete with what we understand to be true. When things can be confusing or where there are things that are untrue but are compelling, it's the Holy Spirit that reminds us of what is true. The Holy Spirit gives us that, that syllabus in order to analyze the curriculum, to analyze whether or not the curriculum has been met, to analyze whether or not what Jesus has called us to is being satisfactorily uh, met. And so when you truly think about what the Spirit is doing, it's given us a way in which, man, no matter what I hear or what I see, I need his Spirit to bring the truth back to me because the things that are not true, they can trouble my heart. So how does Jesus showing us the Father ease our troubled hearts? Our troubled hearts. Well, first, in seeing Jesus properly, we see the Father properly, right? A greater view of Jesus as the perfect image of the invisible God gives us that greater knowledge of who God is. Second, seeing the works, right? And hearing the words of Jesus display the very work and words of the Father. That same Father will do greater works in us in terms of scope and scale. And third, Seeing the Father revealed by the Son is what ultimately converts us and allows us to receive the ultimate comforter and the ultimate sustainer, his very spirit. Now, our hearts are troubled for a lot of reasons even right now. But when our hearts are troubled, we need increased knowing an increase showing and an increase growing. Without a connection to the Father as revealed by the Son, our hearts are going to stay troubled. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep trying to comfort ourselves. What does that mean? Well, we end up trying to forge peace our way, not God's way. We end up responding to hatred with hatred. We end up wanting to respond to injury with injury. We respond to our doubts with fear and despair. We respond to darkness with hiding. We respond to sadness with melancholy. We start wanting to be comforted far more than we want to comfort. We want to be heard more than we want to hear. Our desire to be loved far exceeds our desire to love. Our comfort is ultimately in ourselves if we don't see God properly. And Jesus came that we might find our greatest comfort in God. I'm going to close with this prayer from a famous Italian priest in the late 1100s and early 1200s, St. Francis of Assisi. And he, he said this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you indeed have not left us. And as I look through, as we look back at this moment 2,000 years ago, you promised those specific followers and all followers that will come after them, that you are not leaving us alone. And Father, we who are believers now can even acknowledge that there's a, a privilege that we have that at this time they did not have. 
If we believe you and we follow you, we have your spirit dwelling within us. So God, I pray that the spirit that is within us would grow us, that we would genuinely be able to to hold on to those promises, to be shown what truth is even when falsehood is around us, to be shown what love is when nothing but hatred is around us, to be shown what real hope is even when there's nothing but despair around us. Father, I pray that we would find hope for our troubled hearts, not in anything we create, not in anything that we conjure up, not in anything that we divine, but Father, that we would take all joy, all comfort in who you are and what you promise. Let us seek to see you in all the ways that Jesus expresses you, that Jesus shows you, Father. We want to be so connected to you and so we pray that you would give us real, uh, uh, real encouragement for our hearts in a time where there's so, so many ways that they can be troubled. Father, we pray that ultimately we would be seeking your face and not our own, your will and not our own. Father, I pray that we would pray your heart and not just our own for your glory, for your work, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Wherever you stand, wherever you sit, may all of God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.